This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Tonight's speaker is Michael Levine. He is executive in residence at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, where he has provided international consulting, research, and advising for both the school and its multinational business clients. He has lived and worked in Shanghai, Moscow, Hong Kong, Jerusalem, and Washington, DC. And it is his firsthand knowledge of China and Russia that have allowed him to write his book, The Next Great Clash, with great clarity and without portraying the United States as either the hero or the victim. In The Next Great Clash, Levine presents evidence of a global political order on the verge of a historic power shift from west to east. A re-emerging China is the only nation with the latent capacity to challenge American hegemony. He demonstrates that such a challenge to the status quo usually leads to war. Um, also, uh, the, um, the books uh, are for sale in the back. We invite you to purchase a copy at the seminary co-op table in the back. And uh, um, Mr. Levine has graciously agreed to sign copies following formal remarks. And now, uh, let's welcome Michael Levine. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Denise, for those kind comments. Can you hear me okay? And uh, I'd also like to thank Tom from Seminary Book Co-op and Jamie for helping to organize uh, this event. Um, Denise did a good job of summarizing the thesis of my book. Uh, unfortunately, after years of study and travel and living abroad, I've come to the conclusion that it appears as though we're headed for a major clash with China. Now that might be something that you've heard a lot about, uh, but a unique twist to that that I focus on throughout the book is the role that China, uh, that Russia will be playing in this coming clash. Uh, <clears throat> I should start out by saying uh, I, I have no bone to pick with China. I don't wish for any of this to happen. As a matter of fact, I truly hope that everything I've written is incorrect. And unfortunately, I don't think that that's the case. Um, how did I come uh, to these conclusions? Uh, what I plan to do is go over the first section of the book, which gives the theoretical framework for these conclusions. Uh, and then I'm going to read a brief uh, section of the book. And then there will be some questions and answers. What I found from my years of study uh, are that major theorists and political scientists in the economic realm, political field, 
and also cultural studies uh, all seem to have come up with models or theories that support the idea of a coming conflict with China. Uh, for example, uh, there's a theory put forward by two scholars, Modelsky and Thompson, about long cycles and Kondratiev waves. Uh, these refer to the appearance of economic innovations such as cotton or steam or the railroad or airplanes. Uh, and now we have the information revolution. And what their theory has demonstrated is that whenever one of these major events occurs, these major innovations appear, there seems to be an intersection with a major war. And we're at that point right now, according to their theory. Uh, taking it down a step, there's another theory uh, in a book published by the University of Chicago Press uh, by Organsky and Kugler, the power transition model. And this refers to when transitions occur uh, between a challenger regime's modernization effort, in this case that would be China, and the United States. Now there's a lot of talk as to when China might overtake the US in gross national product, uh, but whenever it happens, according to Kugler and Organsky, war typically has broken out, major war. And then further down, uh, there's a theory that you're most likely familiar with about resource wars put forward by Michael Clare. Uh, and specifically, oil is the problem here, coupled with the fact that many analysts have predicted that we're heading towards an oil production peak where we're going to run out of the ability to produce more oil. And this would lead to a transition to a post-petroleum economy. For example, from wood to coal to oil, then what? And the then what, there's a lot of research that indicates that China is working on the then what. Uh, but regardless, this competition for resources leads to conflict, especially in view of the fact that the U.S., with 5% of the world's population, consumes more than 25% of the world's oil. And by 2025, that's going to increase even further, and the U.S. will have to import more than 70% of its oil. The same is happening with China and India. But in the case of China, they're at a greater disadvantage because they also depend on the U.S. naval fleet to protect the transport of oil uh, through the Indian Ocean and around uh, the, through the Straits of Malacca and up through the East China Sea. Uh, so it's suggested that this will lead to even more conflict. In the political realm, uh, there is a scholar by the name of Philip Bobbitt who suggests that we're on the verge of a transition from the nation state to what he calls a market state. 
And he says and demonstrates that when these transitions occur in the type of constitutional order of the day, that it has led to cataclysmic war between the great powers. Uh, one of the University of Chicago's very well-known political scientists, uh, John Mearsheimer, uh, clearly makes the case for the competition between the U.S. and China leading to what he calls unbalanced multipolarity in Northeast Asia. And he demonstrates once again that this type of unbalanced multipolarity has led to uh, great power conflicts throughout history. And finally, there's Samuel Huntington and his theory of the clash of civilizations in which he has suggested a Chinese Islamic alliance against the West or an uh, arms for oil access. Uh, it's the West versus the, the, the rest or if you will, 14% of the world's population of primarily white people in wealthy northern countries versus everyone else. Uh, and when you take all of this into account, uh, the best way I can summarize this again is by reading the final paragraph of this chapter. Uh, as we have seen, Modelsky and Thompson have established a correlation between the appearance of major economic innovations and global wars and many theorists believe we're on the cusp of a transition from the information revolution to a new wave of innovations that will unleash a revolution in nanotechnology, genetic engineering, and space exploration. At the same time, the erosion of the legitimacy of the nation state and the emergence of the market state may lead to what Bobbitt calls an epochal or cataclysmic war. Regardless, the U.S. will most likely intervene to prevent China's rise as a potential uh, peer competitor, especially because as China's economy grows, the likelihood of war with the U.S. will increase. Huntington believes that a Chinese-Islamic alliance against the West may erupt into an inter-civilizational war. Now those are the big macro trends that are addressed in the book, but then when you move to the U.S. itself and what's happening here, uh, we focus on three general areas. The first, U.S. foreign policy and the rise of what has been called the Vulcans, uh, meaning the neoconservative groups. Uh, and that also seems to have a basis here at the University of Chicago where Paul Wolfowitz studied under Professor Strauss. Um, what has this caused? Severe strains in the Atlantic Alliance, although that seems to be alleviated somewhat recently uh, with the change in power in France and Germany. Um, and it seems like a complete disdain for the United Nations. Um, at the same time, uh, over the past 
40, 50 years, there's been a politicization of the U.S. Defense Department. Uh, by that I mean that the U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, over time has become a political appointee rather than an expert. Uh, and that's especially the case uh, with Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, this has led to a vast strategic overextension of U.S. forces. Uh, there are currently more than a half a million U.S. military personnel assigned to more than 700 bases in at least 38 countries. And this is based on open resources. Um, we don't really know the accurate figures. And it does not include personnel on U.S. aircraft carriers, uh, nor does it include the personnel that are hired by private security firms. Um, and if you look at the U.S. budget allocations for defense, which exceed more than $400 billion, uh, and then you compare that with State Department budget allocations, uh, you see that the State Department is getting maybe four or five percent of what the Defense Department is getting. So clearly, American foreign policy these days stresses force over diplomacy. At the same time, as we all know, the country seems to be mired in debt and it doesn't look very promising as to how we're going to work our way out of this, especially when we have gas approaching $4 a gallon and the subprime crisis, which we're currently dealing with. Um, all the while, China uh, has positioned itself as America's banker. Uh, so in addition to imperial overstretch, something discussed by Paul Kennedy in the mid-80s during the Reagan military buildup, uh, we now have domestic overstretch that seems to be tinged with vanity and hubris that have imperiled America's authority all over the world. Uh, moving on to China, it seems that there are also many trends there that complicate matters even further. Uh, there's a uh, historian of China, his name is Gary Ledyard, and uh, he's come up with a very fascinating uh, account of Chinese history in which he identifies cycles of expansion and retreat. And each of these cycles averages about 700 years. And uh, in this grand scheme of his, the communist dynasty is now in the early phases of an expansionary phase that started with the expulsion of Western powers after uh, the People's Republic was established and proceeded to the reacquisition of Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, and the only missing element, of course, is Taiwan. Uh, when you add this to the fact that Chinese seem to be extremely conscious of their history uh, and of what is referred to as the century of humiliation, uh, we get what are referred to 
by others as hyper-sovereignty values. Uh, and this is especially true when it comes to the western rim of China, Mongolia, Tibet, Central Asia. And coincidentally, the US seems to be encircling China in those areas with bases in Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and there is an increased uh, level of military aid and presence in Mongolia. Uh, the recent disturbances in Tibet and in Xinjiang province um, are also great cause for concern uh, when you realize that challenges to China's territorial integrity have typically uh, led to conflict. In a study of more than 100 uh, military disputes, threats to, threat to China's territorial integrity have led to conflict most of the time. And China typically responds more aggressively and escalates quicker than other nations. Uh, turning to China's alliance pattern, it seems that China identifies with the weaker party in the triangle of China, the US, and Russia. And right now, China is associating with Russia in that regard. Uh, in this instance, as the weaker power. And uh, this is something that would probably thrill Chairman Mao. Uh, but as a result of this alliance with Russia, China is now able to shift its focus from the northern border to its eastern maritime zone. And as a result, it has taken steps to build up uh, certain elements of its military to deal with uh, naval threats. Uh, Perhaps the greatest concern regarding China is that it might fear that its limited nuclear arsenal is threatened by the US system of nuclear missile and theater defense. And that leaves a very small window of opportunity for them to take action before this system, if it's workable, uh, is put into place. Um, and if they do decide to act, it would seem as though Taiwan would be the tripwire. Uh, it must be understood that avenging the loss of Taiwan is a national obligation for China akin to fulfilling its filial duty. Uh, unfortunately, the Taiwan Relations Act in the US stipulates that the US will provide Taiwan with arms so that it can maintain sufficient self-defense capability. Um, over the past 50 years, we've had three crises in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, two of them have apparently 
involved threats of the use of nuclear weapons in 1958 and in 1996. Uh, there's some talk about Taiwan uh, perhaps being subsumed by China in an economic manner. 23% uh, of Taiwan's exports, or 23% of Taiwan's GDP is made up of exports to China. And almost 5% of Taiwan's population lives and works in China. Let's hope that that's the case because Unfortunately, most uh, major wars come about because of the interventions by the existing power on behalf of some other type of victim, in this case, Taiwan. Uh, now, in section two of my book, I focus on the Sino-Russian relation as it has developed since about the 1600s until the present. And what we find is that today, China and Russia are closer than they've ever, ever been before. Uh, and that they're cooperating in ways that have never occurred before. And this seems to be totally off the radar in the media in the U.S. Uh, and it's something that I think deserves greater attention at this time. Uh, so that, in summary, uh, is what the next great clash is about. Um, if you'd like, I'll take questions, and then perhaps after that, read a small selection from the book. Thank you. Questions, please? Please. Uh, thanks for the talk. It was really interesting. Um, but I want to, I mean, I want you to clarify a certain concept which is key for your presentation, which is the uh, this clash you're talking about. I mean, uh, what do you have in mind? Are you talking about a war or a systemic change? Because at the beginning of your speech, when you were doing the literature review, uh, you mentioned about the Kondratiev waves uh, that occurs and which normally within each cycle ends up in a structural change in world economy mm -hmm. and the political organization of the world. Whereas from your speech, I understand as if two nation states will confront each other. I mean, do you envision any kind of economic or political organizational change resulting from this clash that you foresee? Or will it be just a war that we see each and every century? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I speculate that if there's going to be a war, it's going to occur in the next five to 20 years. Uh, the type of change that it leads to, I really don't know what that entails. I wish that I did. Yes, please. We all hear of the pollution problems that China is uh, undergoing now. Mm -hmm. Will that eventually impede its economic growth and affect maybe its status as a great power? Uh, it definitely could, but in the short term, 
uh, it would seem that it uh, helps China to grow economically because they're not saddled with the burden, uh, for example, that the EPA imposes on businesses in the United States, which is of great cost. Uh, I can also add that I've worked in China, and what I found was that uh, concerns about the environment were rather non-existent. There will be a cost to pay, but it's going to come later, just as it's come later in the U.S., it would seem. But yes? Won't it affect its trade policies because if you know, people don't want to accept their imports because of tainted food or whatever else is there? I don't see uh, that it's had much of an impact in the trade statistics these past few months. Uh, but it could. Uh, I think that you'd have to weigh buying cheaper goods or not. Uh, I, I don't know if people take that into account in their purchasing decisions, especially when most of us are pretty hard strapped these days. Do you think this is going to happen because obviously in the next five to ten years the Chinese are going to be overthrown? I mean, they can't, if Russia only held out, they can't hold out much longer. It's been 15 years. How much longer can they hold out? I'm not sure I follow your question. Well, I mean, the Soviet Union was overthrown. I mean, these guys will have to go too. I mean, the people. People aren't going to put up with this forever. There's going to, they're going to. Mm -hmm. Communism is dead, and I mean that somebody's going to real, wake up and realize it one day, and they're not. What are they going to do then? I mean, you, you see the work coming because when they're be, instead of they're being overthrown from the threats, they'll try and use this as a way out. Uh, that could happen. Uh, however, uh, the Chinese have managed their transition economically uh, much differently than the former Soviet Union did. But they, were, but they were much younger. I mean, the Soviet Union survived for like 70 years. I mean, they're hitting like 60. So, I mean, their time is coming. Can they do, uh, can they do much, you know, can they last much longer? I think that, yes, they can, uh, mainly because it seems to be a communist regime in name only. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much adherence to ideology other than a level of capitalism and acquisition that seems to far exceed what goes on here. Uh, that seems to be the new religion along with a type of uh, nationalism that is perhaps dangerous and will be on display for all to see during the upcoming Olympics.
Um, I was wondering if you think that this coming clash could be, uh, could be avoided, and if so, how? I was afraid someone would ask that. <laughs> um, I've thought a lot about that, and I have to admit that I've made lists throughout my years of reading of ways to do that. Uh, they're, and they're not my ideas. I can't take any credit. Uh, but in the scheme of things, I could name many ideas, but they all seem so insignificant. Uh, but that's a rather hopeless message, isn't it? Uh, one of the greatest ways I think that we can make progress is, uh, and you might laugh at me, I think the U.S. ought to consider some type of national campaign to spread the teaching of Chinese and get as many students to China as possible. Right now, there are at least 60,000 Chinese here in America studying in universities in all fields, whereas in China, there might be two or 3,000 Americans who are studying in uh, language programs primarily, uh, and we really have to change that. Uh, that would be one way, but that's something that takes years, if not a lifetime, to accomplish. Um, Another idea is uh, that, that would help in this area would be some type of national service for America's youth in which they're required to partake in not only military service as an option, but perhaps a domestic peace corps or a foreign service type of involvement so that they're exposed more to the world. But, you know, telling that to people here at the University of Chicago, you know, you've already, you already agree with me, I would assume. Um, there's a rather radical idea out there that a good way would be to uh, reimpose conscription here in the U.S. Uh, rather than have an all-volunteer army uh, because uh, there's been speculation that we might not have a war, we might not have been involved in a war in Iraq if, if we had a conscription army uh, because that would affect the whole society whereas our all-volunteer army seems to come from more underprivileged groups primarily located in the South. About 40, 50 percent of conscripts or volunteers come from that area. It's well, maybe we need to change it. Well, you have to get your kids to go. Yep. Uh, but again, these things take years to have an effect. So, yes. Wouldn't the effects of conscription domestically um, be other than those you describe? And um, isn't, it isn't it the case that even in previous wars, the sons and I guess the daughters to, to a lesser extent of congressmen and the people making the decision 
were also serving in war. So doesn't that sort of undermine that argument? It's not only congressmen. It would be across the broad spectrum of the U.S. And so maybe, maybe there would have been more opposition. I don't know. And by the way, it's not my recommendation. I'm just telling you everything I have on my little list. Right, but wouldn't it look like the U.S. was trying to increase its military capacity so that it could use it as opposed to um, necessarily other countries assuming that by increasing our army we were going to prevent war? Well, if a conscript army, the, the number of people, you can control that. You don't necessarily have to increase it. Okay. Mm -hmm. You uh, mentioned that there had been two occasions when the threat of nuclear weapons had come into play. You very carefully didn't say who had made the threats. Mm -hmm. um, but my question concerns the, the type of wars that seem to have been waged ever since the possibility of nuclear war has been a reality. They seem to be largely wars by proxy, where the superpowers uh, Russia, China, and the United States have, have funded or in some other way supported, whether it's armies of liberation or um, reformist, uh, allegedly reformist elements or whatever, um, to fight for their uh, political goals. The, the great calamities in this time have been where superpower armies have gotten directly involved, Afghanistan for the Russians and Iraq and Vietnam for the Americans. Have the Chinese just been lucky since Korea in staying out of this sort of bleeding of the national treasury and, and, and uh, the, the best of its youth? Or, or is this a deliberate policy on their part to, to pull back and, and let other people um, spend the best of their... Uh, their, their national ability uh, fighting idiotic wars. Mm -hmm. uh, well, to paraphrase Sun Tzu, it's best not to fight, but if you have to, let others fight for you. Uh, and one follow-up, the Chinese did get involved in what could have escalated into a nuclear war in 1979 when they invaded Vietnam to teach Vietnam a lesson uh, over uh, Cambodia. And this was done with President Carter's sanction. When Deng Xiaoping met with him in the White House, there was a discussion about this, and after Deng Xiaoping returned to China, the Chinese moved into Vietnam and lost uh, many soldiers as a result. And there was concern that there could have been uh, some type of nuclear involvement uh, by the Soviet Union, who was an ally of Vietnam at the time. Rather than they're going to try and go south? 
I don't think that the Chinese are trying to go anywhere. Uh, they've resolved all of their border disputes with Russia, so that's no longer an issue. Uh, what I'm fearful of is that because of all of these trends that I've presented, that we might accidentally stumble into something like this. Uh, that's what I'm fearful of. I don't think that the Chinese are going to lash out aggressively seeking war or territory unless Taiwan is somehow threatened. Yes, sir. Um, yes, when you are pointing out that this conflict is going to happen in the next five to 20 years, I was wondering uh, what kind of conflict this might be. Uh, is it going to be a military conflict, or is it going to be fought in this sort of economic uh, conflict? Because uh, in my estimation, if, uh, if it's going to be a conflict that is predicated on military superiority, I guess uh, both powers who probably gonna have to find something to use because uh, they both have nuclear weapons and somebody's gonna have to produce something that will make nuclear weapons to be obsolete. Otherwise, they're gonna cancel themselves out. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's almost very difficult to see where the conflict is gonna happen between the United States and China because as you pointed out earlier that the two countries are so intertwined, uh, at least economically speaking, uh, because uh, you have so many American companies uh, operating from China, and uh, as you also pointed out earlier, that uh, China is pretty much uh, like uh, the banker uh, to the US. So when you have these serious economic uh, um, uh, intertwine between the two countries. I wonder why you know how is a conflict going to happen in this kind of situation where nobody's going to win at the end of the day anyway. And to me, what China seems to be doing right now is what the U.S. have done over the years, uh, and that is you know advancing and projecting their own economic uh, superiority by going out into all these smaller states and actually making a presence. So it's really nothing new what China is doing. Uh, it's pretty much an old game you know, from the Western power. So I was wondering what shape and form this conflict is going to take, considering the fact that these two countries are pretty much into each other, economically speaking. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, well, there are many questions involved in your statement. Um, <clears throat> uh, yes, you're right. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, what is new is that China's doing it and not the United States. And so that's not tolerable for the United States in the long term. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, with nuclear weapons, if the U.S. system of nuclear missile and theater missile defense works, uh, that'll sort of neutralize China's nuclear capability. And its nuclear capability is rather small. I believe that there are 20 or so intercontinental ballistic missiles that could hit the U.S. It's a very small force, and it's all land-based. Uh, they don't have them on submarines yet, 
And so it's much easier to take them out, theoretically, uh, if it ever came to that. Um, don't misunderstand, I'm not advocating for any type of nuclear war, however. Um, if there is a war, it would occur in China, not in the U.S. China doesn't have the military capability to project its power here uh, militarily. However, your question leads to some very interesting points. China has been uh, building up its capabilities in asymmetric warfare. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, it looks for weaknesses in the U.S. and exploits them. Uh, what's a weakness? There are many. Uh, the U.S. is networked to an unbelievable extent, and uh, Chinese uh, youth in particular uh, seem to be very talented at manipulating computer networks. Uh, and so it's quite likely that they could theoretically take down the U.S computer network. That would mean our whole economy would come to a standstill uh, like that. And they, theoretically, it could happen. Uh, other areas, uh, there seems to be a type of technology uh, that the Chinese are developing uh, regarding nuclear submarines that might give them an advantage close to home. Uh, the Chinese are also working on uh, warfare in space. Uh, and then, of course, we always hear about the trillions of dollars that the Chinese have amassed in, in their foreign reserves, meaning U.S. dollars. And theoretically, they could dump those on the market and cause huge pandemonium in our economy. Now, you mentioned also the huge uh, interdependence between the U.S. and China. So many people say they'd never do that because it would hurt them too. And that's true. It would hurt them. But they do have an ace in the hole. They do have something they can fall back on. And what is that? Well, the Chinese economy has been fueled in large part with exports all over the world. What would happen if the export market dried up? They would turn to their domestic market, which still has huge potential for development. And Chinese also have the high, well, I don't know if it's the highest, but a very high savings rate of about 50%. So their banks are filled with all of this money that people have been amassing. And now, I'm sure the government would take steps to encourage domestic consumption, which they've unleashed, but only to a small degree. Um, 
What do you think might happen if, uh, if the uh, United States and other countries changed trade policy and started to, uh, started to make requirements on uh, things like workers' rights, uh, rights to unions, collective bargaining? Do you think that potentially would have any, uh, any effect on the relationship between the United States and China? If the U.S. tried to impose these on China, is that what you're saying? Yeah, if there were certain requirements said, you know, because working conditions for a lot of workers in China is pretty bad. <clears throat> and uh, if the United States said there had to be some sort of standard that had to be followed in order to, uh, in order to sell the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't mean to be flippant, but uh, I can imagine someday in the near future when the Chinese will tell the U.S., uh, that we're not going to continue to loan you all the money we've been loaning you unless you put some regulations in place for subprime mortgages. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> and I don't see that U.S. pressure will force the Chinese to do anything uh, regarding uh, labor rights. Uh, that's a long, long, long-term battle. Uh, and U.S. corporations benefit greatly from it. Yeah, my fear is that workers here will eventually suffer if the United States goes too far into the red against China. The standards that, that we've been able to hold on to here a little bit might, uh, might erode. I guess they're signaling that we're coming to an end. No, 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 no. no? One more question. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> well, um, I mean, we can all read population and resource statistics, and um, and you're saying that military parity is an impossibility, but how far into the future is that an impossibility as far as military parity between the two countries? Uh, when will China? reach parity with right. the U.S.? I don't know if China will reach parity with the U.S. militarily, but they have these other weapons at their disposal uh, that counterbalance that. And uh, one that I haven't mentioned is an unbelievable capacity for suffering and sacrifice. Uh, and couple that with a belief that their time has come, and that's a pretty potent force to reckon with. I know it's not a military tool, uh, but it's quite powerful. Uh, and when you live and work in China and see it on a daily basis, uh, it's quite impressive. Um, and thank you all for your questions. They've been great, and I've really enjoyed them. And I truly appreciate your coming out on such a beautiful evening to listen to me, uh, an unknown author. So thank you very, very much.